back once again with the Journal Spotting Masters. Default damage and your behavior. Yeah? Right, guys? Oh, come on. I've been listening to way too much absolute 90s radio in the office, haven't I? Oh, oh God, that was painful. <laughs> <laughs> you, thank you. Thank you for your support, everybody. I don't even right. know what song you're singing. Genuinely have not heard that song before. It's a classic, but Barney oh, has once again. Anyways, we're going to get mastered. No, oh my gosh. You know what? I'm not even going to go there, John. Let's just get on with the podcast. <laughs> Want to hear key medical literature facts to help become that awesome doctor? Whilst also being able to tell if people like beer by their facial expressions, your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you monthly roundups of the top practice changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, guys, to another Literature Roundup. If you are one of Barney's work colleagues and have to put up with his singing, I hope you're seeking the right kind of help at the moment. I'm not sure if listening to a full podcast episode with him on it is actually going to help, but if you're here for Clinical Pearls, the latest practice-changing articles, and some pretty average jokes, your ears are in the right place. They are indeed, you lucky people. Um, yeah, poor office. I have some younger colleagues, and I try to explain why why pulp was that. You know, that came on in the absolute nineties, and why it was a seminal band of the nineties, mainly because it was the first concert I ever went to. Um, and I started singing along to disco, um, you know, disco two thousand, and um, and it, you know, basically all my all my spouting fell on deaf ears, and the poor things. And one of them reminded me that they were three in the year two thousand, and um, yeah, so I wasn't too bothered about that song. <laughs> I genuinely, I'm not even sure what song you're referencing. I, I need to go and let's all meet up in the year 2000s. No, I haven't heard it. Well, I'll listen to it later. <laughs> oh I'm doing really well today, guys. Okay, <laughs> I've um, I've promised our listeners some actually useful things, so we're going to need to carry on. Anyways, listeners, let's get to the task at hand. Uh, we are here to deposit uh, into your brains via your ears uh, some excellent articles and ones that have been published in the last couple of months. And we have got an awesome team uh, on this episode. Guys, do you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Cami Hirons and I'm a GP in South East London. I will be covering a couple of papers, one comparing sugar and sweetness and another one looking at the benefits of exercise. I'm LJ Smith, a respiratory consultant in South London, and I'll be covering whether we can rely on pulse oximeters to detect hypoxia, and if we should ban sunbeds as a public health intervention. I am Dr. Jonathan Hudson, I have never been on a sunbed, and I am going to bang on about SGLT2 inhibitors, and then explore the causes of drug-induced liver injury. And I am Barnaby Hirons, and today I will be covering which IV med may be best in AF with rapid ventricular response and why paracetamol may not be as safe as we hoped. As always, before we crack on, uh, just a massive shout out to all our listeners. Uh, in particular, they seem to be heavily concentrated in America in Virginia. So shout out to all our listeners in Virginia. I uh, didn't know we had a fan base there. Um, get in touch to say hi. What is going on in Virginia? Um, to the rest of you wonderful listeners all over the world, remember to follow us on social media, send links out to all your friends and family, and feel free to get in touch with us at journalspotting at gmail.com, especially if there's a paper that you spotted that you want us to cover. Now, we have got some awesome stuff. LJ, you're first. Pulse oximeters. Great. I don't know if you remember some work published in 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine, which actually made waves when it was published as it identified structural racism in our health monitoring equipment. Um, if you remember, it looked at 10,000 patients throughout America and showed that pulse oximeters overestimated blood oxygen saturation more frequently in black people than white. 
So patients who registered SATs of 92 to 96% on oximetry could have a true saturation, as recorded by ABG measures, of less than 88%. And for black participants, this happened 12% of the time, three times the rate at which it occurred for white participants. And the study's leader at the time observed that this difference would be the difference between admitting someone to hospital and sending them home. And this was in the time of COVID. So this was a really relevant paper at the time. This was just a snapshot with no outcomes reported. So the article I'm about to talk about um, really moves this thing forward. Thanks, LG. Yeah, I remember that study. I, I, I presented it in general spotting. And yeah, it was really interesting, wasn't it? And I was trying to figure out how we could, in my head, I thought we could do like a little study looking at, looking backtracking, looking at all the COVID patients and their, out, you know, and their outcomes. But the problem I found was we just have to have such big numbers to do it. So I'm really interested to see what what's come of this. Yeah, I think I think that's true for lots of people. It was the findings were so significant, but it wasn't really clear what to do with them, other than worry about the fact that we'd probably sent patients who were black home who should have been admitted. So thankfully, someone has thought about this and got some big numbers. So there's a study from Henry et al, just published in Critical Care Medicine, and it really builds on this evidence. It's an observational cohort study in three hospitals in the US all over 18s who were admitted either to ICU or were undergoing surgery. And they had simultaneous measurements of pulse oximetry estimated oxygen saturations and arterial blood gas derived oxygen saturations. And it was a really big study, 128,285 paired pulse ox and ABG derived SATs in 26,603 patients. So probably a few more than we'd had at King's. They did some multivariable models and they used those to assess the relationships between race, occult hypoxemia and clinical outcomes of hospital mortality and hospital free days. And after adjusting for some confounders, self-identified black patients were significantly more likely to have occult hypoxemia than were white patients. This was 6.2% versus 3.6%. And there was also um, a difference with self-identified Asian and American Indian patients also having a greater risk for occult hypoxemia. There were low numbers of these other minority patients, so that wasn't statistically significant after adjustment, but for black patients it was. And really importantly, occult hypoxemia was associated with higher risk for mortality in both the surgical and ITU patients with odds ratios of 3 and 1.4. That's incredible, right, And that's what we all feared, really, wasn't it? That actually the data was, one, correct, and two, um, really did you know, meet with the worst outcomes. What do you think we should do with these results? Yeah, so I think you're right. This this is what we feared. And this study has borne out those those poor outcomes. So I think this should change practice at this point. So race is a social construct and it's not synonymous with skin pigmentation. But what this study shows is that skin pigmentation, which obviously affects light absorption in self-identified black patients, influence the results of pulse oximetry in a way that could affect clinical outcomes. So I think we should have a low threshold for getting ABG measured SATs in patients with darker skin, particularly when the index of suspicion of hypoxemia is high. And I think it's really important that we that we move forward and validate pulse oximeters in populations of people who are not just white. That's fascinating. And you're right, Audrey, I think it's going to be practice changing and potentially will change, change guidelines um, based on this sort of data. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. At the very least, um, guidelines should immediately add a warning about the risks of occult hypoxemia. And then I guess some more research um, will inform further changes to our guidelines. That's brilliant, LJ. Really, really interesting. And um, Barney, I think um, LJ has just broken one paradigm. Are you about to do the same with blood pressure? <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. Okay, guys. Um, so imagine, imagine you've got this elderly patient in front of you. They've got a whole host of comorbidities. And unfortunately, like many of them, they, they are in some mild to moderate pain with a bit of osteoarthritis or something like that. 
Um, what painkiller are you going to consider prescribing first line? Well, do you want me to jump in there? I see this a lot. It obviously yeah. depends on their comorbidities and what they're already taking. But I imagine you're going to start with something like paracetamol. Paracetamol sounds like a very good choice. Sounds excellent. And you've teed me up nicely, Kemi. Thank you very much. Why do I feel you're going to pick this apart? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when, you know, I think John would probably go for something like fentanyl, but, you know, that's fine. Paracetamol <laughs> will work with that. That's okay. Now, okay, we, we all know the potential dangers of overdosing on paracetamol or acetaminophen, as they say in Virginia, USA. You're welcome, Virginia. But I think it's generally assumed that there are very few issues with taking it within the recommended daily limit, which is about, which is four grams over 24 hours, as long as they don't have liver failure or they weigh 30 kilograms or something like that. I've got two studies that potentially could challenge this paradigm. First up, Circulation recently published the results of the PATH-BP trial. 110 patients, not huge, but they were all with known hypertension and not taking paracetamol and didn't have chronic pain. They were randomized to two weeks of treatment of four grams standard paracetamol a day, then crossed over to placebo with a primary outcome of daytime ambulatory blood pressure. Relative to placebo, paracetamol increased mean systolic blood pressure by 5 millimeters Hg and mean 24-hour ambulatory systolic blood pressure by 4 millimeters Hg. Moreover, about a third had a rise of more than 10 millimetres above their systolic blood pressure on placebo, and some even had a rise as big as 25. Now, considering most antihypertensives aim to drop your blood pressure by between 8 to 10 millimetres Hg, you can see this is pretty significant. To put into a bit more context, on a population level, we already know that a persistent increase of 5 millimetres over 24 hours would increase stroke mortality by around 15%, coronary heart disease mortality by about 9% and total mortality by more than 7%. That's really interesting. Any suggestions on how it can cause this? Well, I mean, considering we don't even fully know how paracetamol acts as an analgesic, it comes as no surprise they're not sure. So one theory is that, like NSAIDs, it may inhibit COX-2, which reduces prostaglandins, which affects the blood pressure, but it's not clear. However, my next study potentially could suggest a, a different mode of action of that. Uh, just before you tee us up for the next article, Bonnie, what, um, did they mention any cardiovascular outcomes? Obviously, they all had increases in blood pressure, but it was only over yeah. two weeks. So, Absolutely. A bit short, isn't it? So, And that wasn't in the remit of this study. But like a well-oiled Segway machine, Jonathan, my friend, my next study does investigate this too. So this was sodium-containing acetaminophen, and cardiovascular outcomes in, an, in individuals with and without hypertension. And this was published by the European Society of Cardiology. So the background on this is that excess dietary sodium confers worse cardiovascular outcomes in hypertensives, but the link is actually less clear in normotensive patients. So as doctors, we often tell our hypertensive French fry lovers to put less salt in their chips. Interestingly, restricting salt in your diet is actually far less effective than converting your diet to a mostly plant-based one, such as the DASH diet, but maybe that's for another day. Very true. Okay, thank you, lifestyle guru. Um, any other salty tips before we press on? <laughs> Lovely. Well, salt tastes stronger when you put it on your food rather than if you put it in whilst cooking. So one way to reduce it is to not use it whilst cooking, but just sprinkle it on afterwards. And another thing is to reduce processed food as 70% of your salt input is from processed foods. Really? Well, there, thank you very much. That's You're very well. good. <laughs> Some excellent salt tips. Um, I, I love salt in my chips. So but anyway, um, <laughs> basically, the reason they did this study is because they're never going to get ethics to do a randomized controlled trial comparing placebo with salt 
to see which group dies quicker. They compared salt-containing paracetamol, which is the soluble or effervescent kind, and normal tablet paracetamol, which does not contain sodium. They then compared two cohorts, hypertensives and normotensives. So you know, if you took four grams of effervescent paracetamol each day, you would take in about 3.5 grams of sodium. And please bear in mind that the WHO recommended limit for sodium is two grams a day, so you're nearly taking double, just in paracetamol. The authors used a UK GP database to find patients who were prescribed paracetamol and followed them up for one year. Patients were aged between 60 and 90 without any known cardiovascular disease. So are the two groups, Barney, the, um, that they've compared are ones taking paracetamol tablets, which don't have salt, and then ones taking effervescent paracetamol that does have salt? Yeah. Are those your two cohorts? Oh, okay. And, and, and they were split into what people, um, they looked at that in hypertensives and they looked at that in non-hypertensives. Uh, okay. And why did they go for 60 to 90? So in the UK, you, uh, you're eligible for free prescriptions past a certain age. And the theory is if they aimed at that age range, they could have more control. and They would have a better idea of um, patients who are being prescribed paracetamol and they would be less likely to go out and buy paracetamol because they're getting free prescriptions. So that's why you use that, which is, which is quite clever. The key outcomes from this study was incident cardiovascular disease, so that's myocardial infarction, stroke or heart failure, and all-cause mortality. They collected data on around 150,000 patients with hypertension and 150,000 without. In each cohort, around 5,000 of the patients were prescribed a sodium-containing paracetamol, and the rest were prescribed paracetamol without sodium. So let's think about the hypertensive lot first of all. At one year, 5.6% of those taking a sodium paracetamol had an incident cardiovascular disease event. So let's say heart attacks or strokes and that sort of thing, compared to 4.6% in the non-sodium paracetamol cohort. That gave a hazard ratio of 1.59, meaning they were 59% more likely to suffer something. Then in the non-hypertensives, the risk was 4.4% with the sodium and 3.7% without, giving a hazard ratio of 1.45. So it's still very significant. All-cause mortality was even more striking. In hypertensives, one-year risk of death was was 7.6% in the sodium group compared to 6.1% in the non-sodium group with an average hazard ratio of 2. And this was similar even in those without hypertension. Those are quite uh, big differences, Barney. What what does this tell us that's new? I mean, basically, is this this saying people that take salt are going to have worse outcomes and, and to be wary of the salt in paracetamol? The key thing with this really is the salt more than paracetamol, but the paracetamol um, maybe again maybe having a playing a, playing a part. Yeah. Um, because you can't compare salt and no salt. You can't just give people salt. So they um, they've changed that to say, okay, this medication has got salt in it, and this hasn't. So you're comparing two like groups. Oh, clever. One taking salt and one not. Clever. Uh, did they know if the patients were actually taking the drugs? Or did they adhere to it? So they know that they were prescribed paracetamol. And of course, it's impossible with these huge numbers to know exactly how often they're taking the paracetamol. But what what they did say is that they could see there was a, based on the number of prescriptions they were being prescribed of paracetamol, they could see there was quite a clear dose-response relationship. So it does seem relevant. And are they well-matched? Yeah, they were fairly well-matched. Again, a huge number, you'd expect. Nice. Okay, okay. So my brain sort of kicked in only halfway through to got my head around what you were saying um uh, that's awesome so to recap any type of paracetamol can potentially be dangerous to those with hypertension from your first study and salt is pretty bad too but paracetamol containing salt is bad for both hypertensives and normotensives yeah pretty much in a nutshell so 
Listeners, beware of salt-containing medications, especially anything soluble or effervescent. And in those with cardiovascular disease and hypertension, I'm afraid we're going to just have to be aware of the potential risk of paracetamol too, especially if they're taking it regularly. Awesome. Well, not for the patients. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> they're just going to have to be in pain. That's probably going to put it the um, let's go from something salty to something sweet. And don't worry, Cami, that's not a reference to your personality, but the content of your next paper. Are you saying... I'm not making any comments about her personality. It's just, it's just not about her personality. personality. Salty? Or, you just, or maybe he's just calling you Sal. I'm leaving. This is outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do a Will Smith and come and slap you. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky this is virtual. <laughs> Well, thank you for that lovely yet confusing intro. <laughs> I have found a topic close to my heart. The use of sweeteners in drinks compared to sugar. So this is a hotly debated subject. Some people sit firmly on the sugar is bad, therefore sweeteners must be better side of the fence. When others feel that sweeteners are an untested chemical, which could have detrimental effects on health, possibly even worse than the sugar they're replacing. So evidence has been conflicting and nutritional studies are notoriously difficult to get right. So reliable data are lacking. Just a little bit on sugar before we get stuck in. The WHO recommend a sugar limit of 10% of total daily calories. That's around 12 teaspoons or 48 grams a day. Saying that, they say everyone should have a goal amount of less than 5%, which is 6 teaspoons or 24 grams. And just for reference, a sugar-sweetened beverage, which they reference in these um, papers, but basically a sugary drink, e.g. a can of Coke or Pepsi, has 35 to 39 grams of sugar. So way over what we should be aiming for based on the WHO recommendation per day. Even those recommendations are quite high. 48 grams a day of sugar is quite a lot. Um, And obviously a can of Coke is well over that goal amount. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so just a little bit on sweetness before I carry on. There are different types. There are nutritive and non-nutritive. Polyols are sugar alcohols such as sorbitol and xylitol, and they can be naturally or artificially produced. They do contain carbohydrates, but they have far fewer calories and less effect on blood glucose than sucrose. And then you've got non-nutritive sweeteners, which are basically artificial. So you've got aspartame and saccharin, and there are loads more. Now, there are lots of controversies and bad publicity about sweeteners. So let's find out if this meta-analysis published in JAMA can pull it all together. So there are 17 RCTs included involving over 1,700 adults. The primary outcome was body weight with numerous metabolic secondary endpoints. There were three key groups investigated. The first being artificially sweetened beverage used as a substitute for sugar-sweetened beverages, so basically sweeteners v. sugar. The second was water as a substitute for sugar-sweetened beverages, which most guidelines do suggest, so that's water instead of sugary drinks. And the third was artificially sweetened beverages compared to water, so sweeteners v. water. Now, there's a plethora of results in this paper, and I'll try to sift out the key facts. When drinks that had sweeteners in were substituted for sugar, patients lost a significant amount of weight. Now, by significant, that is a statistical term here, meaning the weight loss was actually only one kilogram. And the BMI dropped by a whopping 0.3. So actually not very impressive. And there was no difference in glycemia, blood lipids or blood pressure. The RCTs here were thought to be of moderate quality evidence. Okay, so, so far, I'm not massively persuaded. There's possibly a tiny bit of benefit, but it's not really convincing on important outcomes. Agreed. Um, Now, the remainder of the study looked at the next two groups, um, and they were of low quality. Firstly, they found no benefits from substituting water for sugar-sweetened beverages, 
which I find a bit bizarre. And then next, they compared water to artificial drinks, and that had a marginal but significant increase in HbA1c, a slight amount of weight loss and a slight drop in blood pressure. Okay, so that's helpful. So maybe we can give some guarded recommendations about about not using sweetness for that reason. There's often a lot of discussion in the sort of diet world, particularly um, those nutritionists on social media. Um, And there are some worries about sweetness possibly being carcinogenic. Did they look at those kind of outcomes at all? Absolutely, people do worry about these things. Um, But unfortunately, this study didn't look into it. Uh, And the follow-ups would not have been long enough to give us an answer. However, Cancer UK and the US National Cancer Institute both said Uh, have both said that sweeteners do not cause cancer based on current guidance. That's really helpful. Yeah, I think it's an extremely difficult topic to investigate with lots of potential co-founders. So the truth is we don't really know for certain. Also being a little bit cynical, some of the trials in this meta-analysis did have conflicts of interest as they were partially funded by companies such as Ocean Spray, the Canadian Sugar Institute, Nestle, PepsiCo, among many others, which were probably a bit less biased. That's a real problem, isn't it? I mean, we worry about drug companies sponsoring drug trials, but actually in the nutrition world, we really need some good quality evidence. And when we have studies funded by these companies, that's a real challenge. Do you think overall this will change what you recommend to patients? Well, really, all you can do is tell patients the truth. So what we know is that if they replace their sugary drinks with an artificially sweetened drink, it might help them lose a little bit of weight. But there isn't strong evidence that it will help other conditions such as diabetes currently. Equally, there are other factors to consider, such as the addictive nature of sweeteners, the fact that most fizzy drinks are ultra-processed, which in itself confers risks to health. Uh, So by replacing sweet sugary drinks with artificially sweetened drinks, people will crave their sweet fix, whereas if sweet drinks are replaced with water, their taste will change over time. That's good to hear. Thanks for that. Um, And, you know, my my question always seems to be to you about, what about beer? Do they talk about beer? They didn't look at beer, Barney. <laughs> Sounds like beer is okay then. Okay, John. Thank you, Gary. That's brilliant. That's really helpful. Good to go through. Uh, John, you're next up with an article um, about what I know is one of your top 10 drugs, not just of 2022, but of the last, since we started journal spotting. So what's the latest? What's well, in the top 10? Top 10. It's at least top five. What's your top, what's your top drug, John? <laughs> this isn't your top drug. I wouldn't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> this might be it. This might yeah. be it. So amongst all the doom and gloom of 2022, there has been one glimmer of good news. Believe it or not, I'm not referring to the creation of the limited edition journal spotting mug available in a mess near you soon. Uh, What makes the mug limited edition, John? (laughs) Good question, Cammy. We haven't got enough money to order more. So anyways... In early March, NICE approved empagliflozin for chronic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and the crowd went wild. This is alongside an approval for dipagliflozin and some incoming approvals for SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which are going to come down the track. Empagliflozin reduces cardiovascular deaths and heart failure hospitalizations in chronic heart failure. So what about acute heart failure? I hear you ask. And when can I start an SGLT2 inhibitor? Can I just also say, I'm really glad you're doing this paper because I cannot pronounce these drugs and I'm going to listen back to how you say them and make sure <laughs> I don't look like an idiot on my wardrobe. So thanks. <laughs> the Flozins. The Flozins, yeah. yeah. Oh, actually, Empagliflozin was the very first journal spot we ever did. So anyways, 
I do hope you guys get to prescribe in empagliflozin and pronounce it properly on your ward rounds this year. This brings me along to the impulse trial. The question is, does empagliflozin work in acute heart failure? So this is a multi-center randomized controlled trial that randomized patients with a primary diagnosis of acute heart failure to receive empagliflozin 10 milligrams or placebo for 90 days from admission to the 90 days. Okay, and what type of patients did they include? Yeah, so this is key. So patients admitted uh, symptomatic with evidence of pulmonary congestion or fluid overload, Um, good blood pressure, so systolic had to be above 100, they had to have a raised BMP, they had to be already started on at least 40 milligrams of IV furosemide, they could be both diabetic or non-diabetic, and they could have a normal or reduced ejection fraction. And they had to be randomized uh, no later than five days after their admission, so ideally randomized within the first 24 hours. The study itself randomized 250 patients in both arms, roughly, and this gave them um, two pretty well-matched cohorts, both of about 70 years of age, two-thirds were men, two-thirds were white, and they were mostly European, so not a particularly diverse population. Um, The median injection fraction was 31%, and one-third of them were presenting with a new diagnosis of heart failure. You've got us on tenterhooks, John. What did they find? Okay, so the headline, uh, for the primary outcome, for clinical benefit at 90 days, empagliflozin was superior. But the question is, how did they actually calculate this? And it's time for a brief statistical detour. So feel free to go and do something else if you want. Uh, or you can stay and listen because it's interesting. Cognology trials love hard outcomes, but other things do actually matter as well. So the authors used what they call a hierarchical composite outcome of the following things. Time to all-cause death, number of heart failure events, time to the first heart failure event, and a five-point different difference in a quality of life index, which is heart failure specific. Okay. And the idea is that they use something called a stratified win ratio approach, which means they look at one patient from each group and determine which one achieves the better outcome in the order that I just described. Okay. So basically you're saying in it that death is the most important outcome. Okay. So you compare patient A and patient B. Um, If patient A, who is, let's say, Um, on placebo, if they die after 30 days, and they're compared to patient B, who's on empagliflozin, and they die after 40 days, then the empagliflozin patient wins. Now, if nobody dies, then you move on to the next outcome. Does that make sense? So it's sort of hierarchical. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm getting some nods. It's kind of a way to have a composite outcome. Um, you then get this thing called a uh, win ratio, right? So you're essentially giving this composite of clinical benefit. And um, this has been a long-winded way of saying the win ratio for empagliflozin was 1.36 compared to placebo. So 36% relative better sort of clinical benefit based on this. What about the hardest of outcomes then? Death. Did they actually look at that? Yeah, so the, the composite obviously includes death, but it, it's not specifically for mortality. But So it was one of the secondary outcomes, and mortality was 4.2% in the empagliflozin group and 8.3% in the placebo group. And another really crucial aspect is the safety analyses revealed no difference in sort of any adverse outcomes between the two groups. And before the smart-ass medical student on the ward round asks, there was no euglycemic ketoacidosis seen, just to say. We can kind of put that they one to bed. They do always ask about that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Were there any corneas gangrene? <laughs> there were no corneas gangrenes. Well, there we there go. was no. Yeah. Also, there was no like symptomatic hypotension as well. It was all pretty well tolerated. Okay, so John, is an SGLD2 going to be part of acute heart failure management? Yeah, so it's not going to change practice overnight. Uh, I don't think people are going to be necessarily prescribing 
I still tune in for a cute half They're just based on this one trial. Certainly, I don't think I'm going to be sort of brave enough to. But there are a few key points to take away. First, the trial shows that you don't have to wait to prescribe an SGLT2 inhibitor for heart failure, right? So this is a drug that we now know in chronic heart failure that improves mortality. So there's no point waiting until they've been discharged and they get back to their GP. You can start this drug while they're having an inpatient episode, and that can be a decompensation of their heart failure. Second, um, this is another really well-run trial indicating that they're pretty safe. And as I kind of just said, they're, they're safe in acute presentations of heart failure. And, and as I said earlier, a third of these patients are actually new presentations of heart failure. Um, it's mostly the diuretic effect that people think these are how the SGLT2 inhibitors are working. That's probably how they're working in acute heart failure. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see them being prescribed in acute heart failure soon. Um, maybe we need to watch this space for a little bit more evidence because um, it's not a massive trial, but very positive. Always positive, isn't it? I mean, I'm just waiting for the time when we find out Flozen's, everyone's on a Flozen diet, drops dead at 10 years or something. No, 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 I'm sure not. Um, and there are some doubters. There are some doubters on Twitter, doubters on Flozen's. And I, uh, you know, I always feel like I want to get an argument. Like, kind of... and, and the, the doubt is also, like, it is really expensive. They are really expensive. So, it, you know, it's not without you know, and, and, and in some of the trials, the, the benefits aren't huge and sort of a cost benefit to weigh up. So, And, and all the trials so far, every trial I've seen on Flozins has always been in a very white-centric population, which is always quite interesting. I mean, this one, had, I was at two-thirds were white, where the other yeah. I've seen 90% or something. It's crazy, so, or more. So um, whether that makes a difference, who knows? Yeah, just a, and I, I'm, not, I'm not clambering for everyone to prescribe an SGL2 inhibitor for acute heart failure. I'm just sort of saying there is this trial and it's positive and that's quite interesting and we may no, be I'm working sold. towards that. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. I'm just going to start prescribing and wait for my bump to chase me around. Anyway, um, thank you, John. Actually, whilst you're talking, as fascinating as it was, I was actually staring out the window, right? I was looking outside thinking, ah, oh, it's a shame. It's got cold again today. The sun came out fleetingly over the weekend and it was lovely, but now it's cold and I'd love some you know, sun and some vitamin D. But maybe I'll get the same benefit from a tanning booth. Is that, is that right, LJ? This is a segue, by the way. <laughs> In case you haven't listened to this is a this is a segue. How often do you have these thoughts? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot. Great question, Barney. Um, before I answer it, I'm going to ask: Has anyone here used a sunbed? That would be madness with the amount of um, skin exposure I have on my head. <laughs> that, that really would be madness. <laughs> um, anyone else? Factor fifty all the way. Once when I was, I think I was nine years old, we went to my friend Ross Corley's house and his aunt had a sunbed and we, we both went in the sunbed. Look at you name dropping. Is not recommended yeah, for yeah, nine-year-olds? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think he's listening. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad we've not got any absolute sunbed worshippers here because otherwise I'm going to have some bad news for them. So I have definitely not used a sunbed. I have a real fear of skin cancer and with some good reason because I have very tight one skin and some extremely vivid memories of peeling off sheets of skin after being burned as a child. So I also, John, am a factor 30 minimum 50 anywhere hot kind of traveller. Um, so the thought of paying to be exposed to UV is not very appealing, but I was still really shocked to discover the popularity of sunbeds and the rates of melanoma associated with indoor tanning. So there was a meta-analysis from the BMJ in 2012 that looked at the risk of cutaneous melanoma, and it's increased by 20% for people who've ever, ever used indoor tanning devices. And the risk of melanoma was doubled when use was started before the age of 35, who are most of the people using commercial sunbeds. And there was also a risk of 
um, basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell, squamous cell carcinomas, which are known as keratinocyte cancers. These are obviously like less likely to be deadly, but still not something you want. Just to so say, the- have you ever been to Liverpool? <laughs> I have been to Liverpool. Yeah. Why do you ask? Um, we, we like about on every street, on every street corner, and it's probably in the same quantity as you know, your local corner shop. There are sunbathing, suntan places. So I'm not that surprised by the fact that I so many people if use that's them. Still the case, though. This maybe not. A long time maybe maybe it's reduced, but I'm not. I'm not surprised. I suppose that certain places they're still very very popular. So while uh, Barney just uh, badmouths people of Liverpool, yeah. I think we'll hurriedly move on. Um, <laughs> we just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's important to remember that WHO classifies sunbeds as carcinogenic um, and bans on indoor tanning have been introduced in other countries, including Brazil, Australia and Iran. So the question here is whether we should have a similar ban in England. A key consideration for governments is would such an intervention represent value for money from the perspective of the healthcare system? So the aim of this study by Eden et al. in the British Journal of Dermatology this year in February was to determine the cost effectiveness of a ban on sunbeds in England. LJ, I'm already seeing the responses from the red top tabloid papers screaming nanny state. Um, I'm guessing that's what this cost effectiveness data is going to try and ward against. How do they go about doing it? Yeah, I think there's definitely we need to think about uh, the response of some of our papers. So they've done a really good job of looking at the evidence in detail. Um, Essentially, they built a model which took into account published rates of melanoma, sex specific mortality data, age and sex specific sunbed use. And then they ran two scenarios for a cohort of just over 618,000 18 year olds starting in 2019. So in one scenario, things continued as they are now with ongoing sunbed availability. And in the other scenario, sunbeds were banned alongside a public health campaign on why that was a good idea. And so when compared with the current availability of sunbeds over the lifetime of this cohort, the introduction of a ban and the public health campaign would lead to a 4.8% reduction in melanoma cases. And that's 1,206 cases. So that's pretty significant, I think. And a 4.6% reduction in melanoma deaths. So 207 fewer deaths just by banning sunbeds. And there would also be a 3.3% lower keratinocyte um, cancers. So that's 3,987 fewer other skin cancers. And assuming the lower cost per quality threshold in use in NICE of £20,000, they calculated something called an incremental net benefit. And it was £10.6 million with a gain of 530 qualies. Good numbers. Good numbers. A lot of lives saved and a lot of money also saved. Uh, I'm slightly worried, though, that there's a new trend of essentially discounting modelers since COVID. So uh, how reliable is the model, LJ? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I was a bit sceptical, so I really dug into what they'd done. Um, and actually, I think it's pretty reliable. They factored in some black market sunbed use after a ban. So they didn't assume it would completely eliminate sunbed associated melanomas. They included a negative factor for the anxiety caused to some by the removal of sunbeds, which I thought was pretty generous to add into the model. And they did a number of sensitivity analyses to check what would happen if sunbed use was lower or the intervention cost more. And even in their absolute worst case scenario, the intervention was still cost effective. They were pretty conservative with the estimates of qualies and they didn't include things like fear of melanoma recurrence in survivors, which actually it could be argued reduces quality of life. So the intervention may actually be even more cost effective 
than is estimated here. And they also tried to account for the fact that newer treatments have been developed for advanced melanoma and that reduces mortality but increases costs of care. So they did a lot and overall I think the findings are reliable and I am absolutely totally sold on banning commercial sunbeds as a public health intervention. Um, And the authors actually cleverly suggest something called a sunbed buyback scheme. So one of the things that's often said if we're trying to make changes to certain industries is, well, that's not fair. What about those people who earn a living? And they've suggested this scheme where the um, in included in the cost would be some money to commercial sunbed providers to repurpose their businesses. And I'm already imagining all those um, corner shops, all those corner sunbeds in Liverpool being turned into sustainable businesses. We could have some plant-based cafes, some zero waste stores, some e-bike stores and some solar power companies on every high street. Um, I think that's great. Great idea, LJ. Um, And it's really interesting um, I think the argument perhaps will be that, you know, maybe education, more education, that's, you know, people will be able to make choices. But we all know, actually, unfortunately, people often don't make the best choices, you know, based on sort of other social pressures and things. So um, that looks like it's very probably the way forward. Can I ask a question? Do they tax sunbeds, like in the same way that cigarettes are taxed and they kind of pay for themselves? That's a great question, which I do not know the answer to. I feel like you could claw back 10, 10 million pounds. Yeah, not those 207 dead people from melanoma. (laughs) No, sure. Yeah, that's true. You can't call them back, John. You just can't call them back. Oh, perfect. Okay, Uh, let's move on from that dark and strange conversation, um, tax versus deaths. And I'm actually going to go into something which I found in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, um, which often has some really great practical acute medicine articles. So I'm sure we have all been there multiple times. Patient comes in, ECG shows AF, and it's going really fast. And apart from a sporting a heart rate of around 185, patient's actually quite stable, and the blood pressure is holding. So you resist the bubbling temptation to explain to the uh, ED junior why this is not fast AF, which is what they referred, but AF with rapid ventricular response, RVR, and you go and see the patient. You want to give something fast acting, you're thinking IV, what do you reach for? Um, John, what would your preference be as our, our cardiology input? Um, I think the go-to here has got to be metoprolol, probably, something fast. Yeah. I would say depends on comorbidities, depends on lots of things, but I think the answer you're looking for is metoprolol. Absolutely. And metoprolol is generally my, my go-to in these sorts of situations. Um, it doesn't, have, From my experience, it doesn't have a huge effect on the blood pressure, especially if you're given a fairly low dose, you can see a response. It's fairly re- reliable. And who doesn't just bloody love a beta blocker? Um, this study compared metoprolol and diltiazem IV in a meta-analysis of nine randomized controlled trials and eight cohort studies. This involved over 1,200 patients split relatively equally between the two drugs. Essentially, from this data, it looks like I may have been reaching for the wrong drug. IV diltiazem won in pretty much all the categories. It had higher efficacy, shorter onset time, lower ventricular rate, which it ended up as, and less impact on systolic blood pressure. There was no significant difference in rates of side effects between the two. Now, like many systematic reviews and meta-analyses, the conclusions are only as good as the studies which go in, and these were varied in how large they were, the quality of the trial, the doses used, etc. But bearing all that in mind, the results still seem to be pretty conclusive. Uh, Barney, do you want to just remind us what the doses are of IV diltiazem and metoprolol, just for sort of our own learning? Yeah, sure. So actually, after reading the article, I, I kind of reflected on how rarely I see IV diltiazem. I've had to look it up. And that's because it's not actually in the BNF, and that might explain it. 
Um, the initial dose of IV is 0.25 milligrams per kilogram to a maximum dose of between 20 and 30. Realistically, you might start at 10 milligrams and assess response. Metoprolol, you can give up to 5 milligrams IV. Um, but remember, a one-off lower dose and reviewing the effect is usually the best way forward. So personally, depending on the blood pressure and heart rate, I would give 1 or 2 milligrams IV, assess response and repeat if needed after 10 minutes or so. Okay, so you've got a few reservations about this meta-analysis, Barney. Are you going to change your practice? Well, put it this way. The next time I see a case which fits the above, I will be tempted, if it's available, to go for Um Based on the data, it seems to be overall a better drug. But for, first of all, you have to be a bit cautious as it may be off-label in the UK and your friendly ED store cupboard might not even stock it. Yeah, this is interesting, Bonnie. I, I remember somebody explained to me that they sort of reluctance to go for IV diltiazem seemed to be around the half-life. I know you said there weren't any side effects and difference in the meta-analyses, but the half-life of diltiazem, I think, is around three hours and metoprolol is just 15 minutes. So I think in an acute setting, you just feel a little bit more comfortable giving something which, you know, if the blood pressure does drop or things don't go so well, isn't going to stick around. Um, I'd be really interested to go into this meta-analysis and see what they defined as efficacy as well, um, because that, you know, and see whether clinical outcomes are, are different. But I don't know. I would just be cautious about sort of reaching for a drug which isn't even in the BNF at the moment. But um, it's certainly interesting and certainly something that we need to sort of consider. But I, I guess I would just also highlight the the importance of thinking about um, concurrent uh, comorbidities. So, for example, don't give diltiazem to someone with heart failure, that sort of thing. Yeah, I didn't, um, because it was like a you know, number of studies, they didn't go into all of the inclusion and exclusion, but I think subjective or objective heart failure probably was, you know, it probably was avoided in the diltiazem group. So that, again, that may have played a part. Yeah. I always think you have like slightly more time with fast AF than you think. Like if you're not cardioverting the person and their blood pressure's fine, then you probably can be a little bit more on the cautious side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you very much for your input, cardiology, Batman. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay, so um, now we are moving on to exercise. Cammy, uh, you're going to tell us we need to do more of it, I assume. <laughs> well, yes. Of so exercise, we know it to be good for almost all health outcomes. If it were a pill, I would definitely prescribe it to all my patients. But how much physical activity is needed to prevent death amongst patients? So low cardiorespiratory fitness has previously been shown to be the number one cause of preventable deaths from all-cause mortality. In the US, physical inactivity is the cause of approximately 1 in 10 premature deaths. And worldwide, a physical inactivity decreased by 25%. Over 1.3 million deaths could be averted each year. So another thing to note is that physical inactivity is not only attributed to illnesses such as coronary artery disease or type 2 diabetes, but also depression and breast and colon cancers. Oh, Cam, you're talking about things which are close to my heart. Um, and I, I, yeah, I find this study so interesting. And I think it's just so crazy when you, you just see how little exercise is being done. Does it go into sort of how much exercise we need to be, we need to be doing to prevent death or sort of make us live longer? It does. It goes on to a little bit more. Let me tell you what they did. So participants aged six plus were asked to wear an accelerometer. These are movement monitors that have the ability to capture intensity of physical activity. So anything like an Apple Watch, but I presume far less sophisticated. And they wore these for seven days and then evaluated uh, 4,840 adults. And they, the ones they evaluated were aged 40 to 85. MVPA, which is Estimated Moderate to Vigorous Physical Activity, was summarised using all this data from the accelerometer minutes at or above an established cutoff point. 
So a total of 1,165 deaths occurred during the mean follow-up of 10.1 years. And just to say, that is a staggering 24% of their subjects that died over this uh, follow-up period, which I thought was quite interesting in itself. Um, And they found that increasing the MVPA by 10, 20 or 30 minutes a day was associated with a 6.9, 13 and a 16.9% decrease in the number of deaths per year, respectively. They're crazy numbers, aren't they? 25% died and increasing by 30 minutes, you could reduce the rate of death by around 17% That's um, per year. That's crazy. Okay, yeah, really interesting. Can I just check? Um, so they, they measured the how much activity they were doing just for seven days, but then they followed them up for 10 years. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Take from that what you will. Um, but essentially, what they have suggested is that adding just 10 minutes per day of physical activity resulted in an estimated 110,000 preventable deaths per year with greater benefits associated with the addition of more physical activity. This indicates that the addition of 10 minutes a day of MVPA was associated with the prevention of 8% of total deaths per year among men and 5.9% among women. So this is the first study to estimate the number of preventable deaths through physical activity using an accelerometer um, in US adults. However, as LJ's already said, just one week of monitoring may not reflect changes in activity over time. And the observational study design limits the direct determination of causality. So these findings support implementing evidence-based strategies to improve physical activity for adults and potentially reduce risk, uh, reduce death in the US. Yeah, so it's obviously it's got, it's got its flaws like all of these studies can do. Um, but, you know, again, it's just more data that small increases not huge, small increases in physical activity can have really big effects on mortality and preventing death. So that's really good to know. For sure. But it doesn't actually say how much physical activity these patients were doing at baseline. So that's another um, important fact to be aware of. I mean, were they completely sedentary or were they doing three hours a day already? I think for now, it's great to follow the physical activity guidelines when advising any patient. So that is aiming for 150 minutes of moderate intensity. So that is when you can talk but not sing exercise a week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise where you're unable to talk a week and if you want to really advise your patients well you chuck in a bit of balance flexibility and strength to help prevent fractures frailty and falls brilliant thank you more exercise and less death i mean that's a that's a pretty simple message we can all get behind all right moving moving over john i think you've been doing some reading about liver injury are you worried that those Hair loss pills you're taking are going to do some damage, maybe, or um, or is it what you're saying about what you got up to on Sunday? You had a, <laughs> or, or yeah. cumulative. I'm not worried about the hair loss pills. They've worked incredibly well. <laughs> so I spotted, so I spotted a article in Liver Transplantation. I don't know what I was doing reading Liver Transplantation, but it's all about drug induced liver injury or Dilly, and it kind of caught my eye. So um, this is. Uh, so drug-induced liver injury, or DILI from now on, quite an annoying acronym, but is the leading cause of severe acute liver injury in the USA and Western Europe. And it, can't, it encompasses liver damage secondary to drugs, and that's mostly driven by paracetamol, which has had a lot of airtime on this episode, and herbal and dietary supplements. So the study uh, published by Kaiser et al. Uh, looked at the trends of severe acute liver injury due to Dilly from 1994 to 2020. And they did that by analyzing the United Network for Organ Sharing Database, which gives information on all patients listed for a liver transplant in the USA. 
They demonstrated that there was a significant increase in the number of patients requiring liver transplant caused by herbal and dietary supplements, with over 70% of those occurring in the last 10 years. They also looked at the characteristics of those requiring transplants due to Dili. 71% were female, with a median age of 35. And regarding ethnicity, this is interesting, um, people of Asian ethnicity were five times more likely to require a liver transplant due to a herbal or dietary-induced drug-induced liver injury compared to a non-herbal or dietary supplement drug-induced liver injury. And that's compared to people of a white ethnicity. This um, this really makes us reminds us that it's important to take a proper drug history and that a drug history includes non-prescribed things and definitely includes herbal and dietary supplements. I do sometimes worry when patients are not even sure what's in what they're taking. So were there any particular herbal or dietary supplements that were the culprits for causing Dilly? Yeah, they don't have like a clear breakdown of them. They mentioned ones that showed up multiple times. Uh, so those were iron, vitamin A, and something called Oxy Elite Pro, which is an iconic fat burner, that's in quotes, according to its website, with a terrifyingly long, incomprehensible list of ingredients. But don't take it from me, take it from this guy. And I gotta tell you, this OxyLeap Pro New Formula, I actually took one. I felt it, man. Not only that, these pills are really, really pretty. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna cut that in. Anyways, back to the study. So why am I sharing this article? So first, I thought this was a really useful reminder to keep in mind herbal and dietary supplements when assessing patients with liver impairment. I do not work in a hospital that has hepatology, and much of the workup for these patients is done by general medics. So keep in mind herbal and dietary supplements. And I think one of the take-home points from this is that herbal and dietary supplement use and subsequent liver injury is actually on the rise. So this data is showing us that an increasing number of liver transplants are being done because people are getting liver injury from herbal and dietary supplements. Why is that? Well, herbal and dietary supplement use is increasing, uh, probably due to consumption and probably due to greater availability. Data from the US shows that between 30 and 50% of Americans consume one or more over-the-counter herbal or dietary supplement products on a regular basis. In addition, there has been an absolute explosion in the number of products available and the ease with which you can get them. And I just want to mention on top of that is that some of these products now have such long ingredients lists that you just have no idea what's actually in them. The complexity of these products is increasing and there's just no regulation. That's a real worry. That's a really big proportion of people taking things. Um, you mentioned that the study identified that people of Asian ethnicity um, had been more significantly affected by this particular type of dilly. What what do you make of that? Is there any explanation? Yeah, that's interesting. The authors explore this in, in the discussion. Um, it's worth keeping in mind that this is definitely context specific and applies to the USA and applies to a certain ethnic group in America. But the first possibility is that those from Asian backgrounds consume more herbal or dietary supplements. But the authors actually point out that there isn't really much evidence for this. So the evidence is lacking to actually indicate that that's true. The second possibility they suggested um, was, and it's been suggested before, that there's actually an immune susceptibility uh, linked to a genetic variant that actually makes people of Asian ethnicity more susceptible um, to herbal or dietary supplements leading to liver injury. And thirdly, it could be related to the way that certain ethnicities interact with healthcare services. So if you take a herbal or dietary supplement, it's not being prescribed and therefore there's no sort of oversight so by a prescriber and therefore it relies on you actually presenting to a healthcare provider with a problem. So 
um, could be due to delayed presentation. Either way, I think my take home is actually pretty simple, which is basically be aware of the rise in herbal and dietary supplement induced liver injury and make sure you take their histories and really try and establish a cause when you see deranged LFTs. The high proportion of supplements, the supplements are very varied. I mean, vitamin D is a, is a supplement. I mean, was that included in, that, in those sort of figures or is it um, just these? Yes. Complicated- uh, again, there's not like a specific list. So, um, I mean, vitamin iron and vitamin A are two of the top supplements associated with this type of drug-induced liver injury. So oh. they, are, they are ones that people are taking. Yeah. Um, okay. They're not just sort of weird and wacky, like, you know, appetite suppressants. Thanks, Phil. That's, that's really interesting. Mm. That's great, actually. And, um, and good to be aware of. Right, listeners. We are nearly out of time, but we may have something, just a little something from LJ, irrelevantly relevant um, and practice changing. LJ, what what have you got for us? Well, I do have one extra practice changing paper if we've got time. And we have mentioned beer once or twice on this podcast already. So it's from a very eminent journal, Food Quality and Preference, which has an impact factor of a impressive 5.5 and the paper is titled can facial expressions predict beer choices after tasting a proof of concept study on implicit measurements for a better understanding of choice behavior among beer consumers that is awesome how did you come across this it's just in my kind of general reading my wide general (laughs) reading this is wide Uh So in the study, they had 151 Japanese beer consumers taste three beer samples and the participants were video recorded throughout the taste tests and 10 seconds of video were extracted for each sample to analyse facial expressions during the tasting and they used an automated facial expression analyzer. Choice behaviour was measured after each participant tasted all three beer samples and they identified some key features which helped them to understand what choices they were going to make. So a lip suck before swallowing contributed negatively to the number of beer choices and a lip press after swallowing contributed positively to the number of beer choices. LJ, so, could you demonstrate this? Yeah, I think, we can, I think we're going to see an, a demonstration, please, LJ. I mean, this is a podcast. It's mainly an audio format, so I'm not audio sure it's necessary. We accidentally record the video yeah, and exactly. we have somewhere to I do put not, it. I do not consent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue. Okay. So just before we started recording today, um, we asked Barney to taste some beers and I predicted which one he'd choose to drink based on his facial expressions. Um, did I do a lip suck or a lip press? I have no idea. <laughs> well, I was looking very closely and you did a lip press, but how did I do? You I predicted To be honest, actually, the genuine truth is I thought they tasted... A- Pretty much about as good as each other. <laughs> I think what we found is that we have not successfully demonstrated research into practice just yet, and more beer sampling and facial expression analysis is needed. LJ, I'm going to put you on the spot here. How is that going to change your practice? What are you going to do with that information? Yeah, that is quite a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I can think of no sensible yeah. response to that question. Other than bring it out as my fact of the day, which I force all my juniors to listen to on our board rounds. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I can imagine you sitting creepily in a pub, just staring intently at people as they take their first <laughs> Not strange behaviour at all. <laughs> you hate it. You love it. Brilliant, guys. Okay, well, that's fantastic and a wonderful way to end. As always, should we do a little roundup of of our top practice changing tips from what we've learned. We've 
been through a lot and actually it's been really varied and awesome. So thank you guys for going through all of those. Who would like to go first? I'm happy to go first. I really like the paracetamol and sodium paper and it makes me think a lot as a lot of my patients in general practice are on paracetamol. Um, and I also really like the liver transplant one because it's, some, you know, just highlighting that we need to take a thorough drug history. Yep, the paracetamol one definitely has made me think about my use of paracetamol. My partner, who's not at all medical, thinks that paracetamol is a pointless drug and wonders why medics are so obsessed with it. So this is going to give him further ammo. Um <laughs> I really love the paper on the effects of exercise because it really chimes with what we advice we give, but it's really clear that small amounts of increase in physical activity have a really significant effect in terms of outcomes, including death. So I think that's really, really helpful and I'll definitely take away. Uh, my top practice changing point, I think, is the was the start the pulse oximeter in uh black people and the disparity between um oxygenation on sats probe and abgs and that is definitely going to change my practice thank you for sharing that lj john i'm going to go for your uh, your flows in article your impact <laughs> oh my gosh impact in article because i am i'm yeah i too am a big fan i am looking forward to that day when uh acute heart failure and we're like well have we played have you, have you prescribed your flows in? and then you know the genius looking confused and then I reel off all the articles we've ever <laughs> done on <laughs> flows in and their benefits. And I'm looking forward to that day. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. And um, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Jonathan Hudson, Dr. Cami Hirons, and Dr. LJ Smith. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. A special thanks goes out to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grant. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves. Now, if you'd like to hear how the beer tasting went, listen on. So, okay, so LJ, based on your uh, your your article, which you're going to present, I've, uh, I've picked two select beers from the, the back of the fridge who knows how long they've been there and i'm going to give them a try okay fantastic so what i need you to do is tell me beer one take a sip yeah beer two take a sip yeah and then think in your head which one you prefer and i'll see if i get it right predict okay they are being opened as we speak barney so does brew his own beer so i don't know if that's gonna affect the okay, results please. It's not one of those, actually. Otherwise, of course, that would be delicious. <laughs> He's going to have a look of being very pleased with himself as he sips. All right. Okay. Okay, beer one, thanks. That's beer one. That's beer mm-hmm. one, yeah. Okay. That was beer two. <laughs> so i think you preferred beer one can i say what i said wait 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 wait. can i say what i think i think you preferred beer two you think i preferred beer two i think you prefer beer one
<laughs> but um, I'd like to I'll point out what... all the flaws in the study design as well <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a rigorous sort of controlled it's blinded it's partially blinded um it's none of those things i think overall i slightly preferred the second one but i think the reason why i may have looked like i was enjoying the first one was because i wasn't expecting to like it because it was a lager which went um out of date nearly a year ago um <laughs> so i was surprised at how nice it tasted so there we go so that's probably where the i think the lack of blinding meant that this was this was not an adequate way to test this evidence so Absolutely. we'll have to do it again right. next time with more beers my yeah. bias already perfect well, thank you for that next round job. i feel like um, <laughs> well, I'm gonna get- Two years of podcasting, you looking at me and not enjoying what I'm saying has made me very good at reading <laughs> reading your face, Barney. <laughs> not laughing at your terrible jokes, basically. Um, well, I'm going to continue drinking these whilst we crack on with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>